ระวันทาบามุนจันทุสัทังโอนิสกตินาเดนิสเอะทูอ่าซิดคอมฟอร์ทเบลีแอนด์ทูอ่าคอมยูร์มายด์รีเฟล็กต์ออนเดอะดัมมาแอนด์วัตถุไอเซย์จัสต์ยูเวอร์วิดเอ็ดฮาวิดอัฟเฟกต์ยูร์มายด์แอนด์โน้ตว่าดูโน้ตฮาวิดฟีลเพราะฉะนั้นคอนเทมเพลตินดัมมา We're observing the way things are, not from an absolute position or ideal, but from the experience that each one of us is having at this time. And so, for many of you, your traditional Buddhists come from born in Buddhist countries and Buddhist families, uh, where Katina is a is a cultural and a very meaningful event in uh, terms of your. Your faith and devotion, uh, and then those who have come to Buddhism from different cultural backgrounds—Europeans uh, who, who become interested or have developed faith in the teachings of the Lord Buddha or an interest in them—might uh, see this as a, in terms of an exotic ceremony or interesting uh, anthropological study. Or just something you have to put up with in any religious tradition, or a, a family get-together, or whatever. But this is—we're uh, not saying how you have to regard it. We're just pointing out that that each one of us knows what we're feeling about it, how we respond and relate to an event such as a katina ceremony. And one time, I remember when we were trying to get permission for a temple at Amravati to build that temple, and uh, people, uh, local, there's uh, uh, troublemakers in the community were hearing we'd become like the Hari Krishna ashram and much more heat. You know, thousands and thousands of people descending on Great Gadisden all at one time, and destroying the peaceful, pastoral, idyllic life that all those people lead every day in Great Gadisden. And uh, because they assumed that we would just be, uh, you know, having loud rocket ceremonies, elephants prancing up and down the land. <laughs> Not really the worst. I felt like inviting them to a katina ceremony because somebody said it's almost like a non-event. You don't know what you used to. Not now. I just need to put a little. Method in trying to bring it, raise it up a bit, but usually the actual ceremony is very—it's a very subtle thing, just offering cloth to a monk, and then uh, making the, the the proper announcement. So that the idea is that a that a samana is that we're 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 you know being alms mendicant means that we we uh, offering of cloth is something organized by the lay community. Like it says, wafted on a breeze and landed in the middle of the sangha, completely unsolicited. And this is a this is a beautiful image of something that just comes to you, and the idea of not to be one who's expecting, demanding, uh, manipulating, plotting, always of getting things. Because ideal of our life is is to be dependent on the goodwill 
and uh, that which is generous and kind within the uh, communities that we live in, lay communities that we live in. And I want to say that uh, here in uh, England, this has been here 19 years in this country, and uh, this has been a very positive experience for me. That uh, when I came, I didn't know what was going to happen. Whether, you know, if, if, if cross didn't come, wafted on the breeze and land in the middle of the Sangha, it does in Thailand, but I didn't know whether it would happen in England. <laughs> But it happens every year in England in all four of the monasteries. Kun Chonada, Kun Wansana have been uh, very constant and uh, uh, determined lay supporters ever since they came, arrived in this country. I met Kun Wansana in, in Hampstead, and we still before Chithurst. So it's kind of always, uh, it's always quite uh, meaningful to me, quite touching to have. A kind of this continuous kind of interest, loyalty, and support from so many people. And of course, like anything, uh, uh, people's faith goes up and down. People get interested and inspired, and then they lose interest, so they become uh, uninspired, and uh, they become critical. And then, eventually, we hope for more what we call a a more calm and dispassionate attitude of, of, getting to de- of getting down to just the practice of the Dhamma, to where we're actually we're, we're no longer dependent on ceremonies or inspiring teachers or, or uh, scriptural references or, or all the supports that traditional religion gives to, to people who follow traditions, but to internalize that so that the strength and the energy are coming from within you, so that you're 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 practicing the Dhamma rather than just uh, kind of thinking about it, giving it, paying respect to your ideas of it, uh, and going through the motions, where the it remains more just an external experience, merely a ceremony, uh, or like in Christian terms, like going to church on Sunday only, or uh, Christmas and Easter Christians, or or Katina Buddhists, Vesaka Puja Katina Buddhists. <coughs> Internalizing the Dhamma is uh, is something that, for me, has been very natural, uh, and I, I I sometimes have failed to be, sometimes quite insensitive to others because it's so easy for me to do this that I sometimes have never I thought. Because I could do it, everyone could do it. Because I, you don't think of yourself as being any kind of special person, so you, you think, well, if I can do it, surely they can do it. They're better than they're better than I am. You know, I'm quite English too. For an American. <laughs> but this internalization is. It's like you're you're taking the Buddhist teaching, and you're rather than you know one can can merely kind of uh, look at it and and rationally kind of understand it and appreciate it on that plane of intellectual uh, understanding. But that won't get you out of suffering, you know. No matter how well, no matter how much you might know and uh, study Buddhism, uh, it, you know, even if you should 
be uh, an expert, PhD scholar, academic uh, on on Buddhist studies, you might not be able to actually realize the Dhamma yourself yet. It's something that that comes not through through the intellect, but through the heart. Something that you you awaken to the awakened mind. That you're and you're you're learning Dhamma from the way you are. You're not learning Dhamma from the way things should be, but from the way they happen to be now. So the Dhamma of this moment, say, now is what for you, you know? What is it for you right now? What is the Dhamma? There's, there's a, we can just look at this as a, here's Ajahn Sumedho giving his talk, uh, and, uh, and then we, we think, well, have to, what time is it? Uh, I have to catch the train? <laughs> Or, you know, we're always looking on to the future, what we have. And so sometimes we, we ignore what we're actually, what's ex- what we are feeling right now, the way things are right now. Except maybe in extreme experiences, like when one is doing some very kind of intense uh, practice or some involved with some extremely concentrated or highly uh, powerful uh, experience, then we, we might... Um, be very much aware of the now. But usually so much of our life is dissipated in, in endless worries, anxieties, planning for the future, regrets about the past, resentments, and so forth about things in the past. And, and then as you get older, I notice, as you get into my age group, then the future is, uh, what? Old age and death, definitely. No longer can I even, in any moment of my life, convince myself that I'm still young. (laughs) (laughs) And so the, uh, (laughs) at 50 I could still do that, but at 60, (laughs) no way. And so the, uh, and that's good, I mean that's the way it is, it's not, uh, it's not, and I'm not complaining, but just noticing that the future for old people is, is what? Old age, the, the, the problems that come with that, because you don't get, usually, you know, not going to get more kind of energetic and, and more beautiful and all that. You get weaker, stiffer, uglier <laughs> until death. <laughs> so... That's, that's fine. I mean, the, the Dhamma of it is seeing that that's the way it is rather than seeing it in terms of I'm getting old and I'm not, as, I'm not like I used to be and life is unfair. Why does this have to happen? Uh, I'm afraid of death. Uh, I want to have my face lifted. I want to have <laughs> look young again or I want to go out and, and compete with the, with the young chaps and so forth, and then we make fools of ourselves when we, when we don't understand the flow of life, we become foolish people. And with that, that's pathetic when you see people, uh, say, at my age, being very foolish. It's where you feel very sorry for them. So Dhamma allows us to experience life as, as it happens to us. And so this is a part of one's experience of life. All of us, isn't it? All of you have to get old. 
You have to experience uh, the problems that come with, with a human body, its sicknesses, its pain, its discomforts, its problems, and then the inevitable death. And we have to experience loss of the loved ones, loss of parents, of mates, of friends, of partners, of spouse, of, of uh, what, is, what is the plural for spouse? Spice? <laughs> also, um, just like what we learn about ourselves, the way things are in the terms of the microcosmic experience of just your own mind. And these words, New Age words that we pick up, like microcosm. This is a, you know, a valid word that points to just the, what we can actually experience. We, we, we might not be able to, to know everything about everything like God does. You know, from the, the top of the line where, where you're the, the expert on everything and know everything about everything. But in terms of our own experience, we can know that. So it, we're like each of a microcosm uh, in the universe, or we we're learning from we're learning universal truth from this experience of consciousness and sensitivity that we're having right now. It's nothing, and it needn't be. Uh, it's just the way it is in its ordinariness, as well as in it, as in its extremities. But most of our life, if we pay attention to it, isn't, isn't so much an extremity. It's more, most of our life is, is uh, say, on the level of daily experience. Is, the, is like washing the dishes or putting on your shoes or, or eating food or drinking a cup of tea or, or taking a bath and things like these. Are, these things we do all through our lives, they're ordinary, they're not in terms of experience extreme. But also, they can become merely perfunctory habits. We just go through, we don't. We can be dozy and sleepy, full of anxiety and fear or worry, full of conceit while we're, we're drinking a cup of tea, eating a meal, taking a bath, and so forth. When life gets difficult sometimes, then, we're, then we have to awaken. We have to kind of when, when you're called upon, you have to rise up to a difficult task or dangerous situation. Then something in us has to kind of snap out of this, this kind of uh, field of, this, this dreary field of worry and anxiety and self-concern and, and problem-making, grumbling tendencies towards, say, try to survive, survive a difficult situation or be able to rise up to do something that we've never done before, or that we feel we can't do or we're not good enough. We have to rise up to it. So in our lives, we have challenges where, where we have to uh, put forth an enormous amount of effort just to maybe survive a situation. Sometimes in countries like this, we can ride along without having to rise up in a situation. In a society like this, uh, 
it usually carries you along with it. So with the least amount of effort, you can still basically survive uh, in, the, in the welfare system and so forth, so that you can uh, sometimes we, we find people just going along with life uh, and not developing anything but an incre- uh, a dependency on just uh, things being a certain way. And every time those things are threatened, then one gets very upset, indignant, or because the security that we've become very dependent upon is, is being threatened. And we can't imagine what we do if that security were taken away from us. And so sometimes the Sangha in this country, we, we, we have uh, in many ways uh, a very, it, even though we're dependent on alms, uh, we're alms mendicants, uh, we, we have a lot of security because people in this country are generous. And, uh, and they do want to, uh, you know, feed us. And they want to give us cloth. And they want to uh, help build uh, kutis or temples or things like this so that, that there is a, a tremendous willingness, uh, both here and, and, in, and abroad. People send funds or take a tremendous interest in, in the monasteries here in England. So we can develop the kind of, it's easy for most of us, like from my background, I'm from a kind of ordinary uh, white middle class Protestant. They call us wasps in the United States. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. It means that you're the kind of, um, you've got it made. you, You don't have anything against you, any, because you're, you're white, you're uh, Anglo-Saxon <laughs> and Protestant, because these used to be the, what was considered the desirable states in, in the old days. Of course, things have changed since. But this, this kind, of, of, uh, kind of privilege, in a way, oftentimes affects how you look at life, and you can easily sink into that kind of conceit and attitude, even as a Buddhist monk of uh, just being, taking for granted your position, uh, having a kind of confidence in, and having uh, assumptions and, and expectations that come from that kind of background. So I've always, you know, le- we're more and more I think we're learning to appreciate the challenges to this life where, where, we, where we know where things are changing and where we, the, the kind of uh, thing we, where we, the things that we're taking for granted and, and getting used to and getting addicted to uh, can be suddenly taken away from us. So that we, we, we have to say, internalize the Dhamma more to find a refuge within the mind rather than this, uh, dependent, this kind of propping up life all the time in, in the terms of the, the physical environment or each other, demanding each other to be uh, kind of stable and steady and permanent bhikkhus and siddhadharas and and uh, wanting and even expecting lay people or it can be kind of a demand or expectation to that, that you know don't desert me kind of feeling or we must stick together uh, and we must uh, make sure that everything is going along fine everything is all right everything is okay. 
Because what really is the most threatening is where you don't know next day where your food is coming from. What's going to happen to you? Are you going to be left alone? What if all the monks and all the Siddhadars and all the Anagarikas and all the Anagarikas and all the Upasoks and all the Upasikas and all the cats, <laughs> male and female, should suddenly leave and leave me here alone, sitting here on this seat. <laughs> and what if they all said, Buddhism is a waste of time. I've wasted my life. It, it, it's no longer, I don't I have no more faith in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. What if, what if uh, all the monks in Thailand did that, and the Dalai Lama, and everybody said, Buddhism is an utter waste of time, it's a false teaching. What would I do? Now, if, if, my, if my faith in Buddha Dhamma Sangha is dependent on everything being affirming this, you know, like everybody saying, yes, Arjun Sumedho, I, I love the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Yes, Arjun Sumedho, this is, I love monasticism. Yes, Arjun Sumedho. Uh, we're the we're really you know we really got it together and and then w- we want to kind of convert and and uh, make sure that everything is is supporting this positive view and if I haven't internalized Buddha Dhamma Sangha if that if that kind of extreme int- uh, happening should take place where everybody turns away leaves you alone what would happen to me well if if my faith was dependent on the externals, then I'd probably go along with it. But if, but because of the internalization, what are the the Buddha Dhamma Sangha in terms of, of of experience right now? Not they're not just sentimental ideas or, or kind of vague things, uh, you know, or just empty ceremony. It's not just just uh, you know talking about Buddha as if it's some kind of strange abstract power out in space somewhere. But you ask yourself, by internalizing yourself, what is Buddha right now when I take refuge? We, we, when you took the precepts, you said, Bhutang Sarnangachami. What, what is that really in terms of a refuge right now at this moment? And so you ask yourself these questions. So more and more, the Buddha isn't, isn't just a word that we think we understand. Or it's no longer seen in just its historical uh, content, but we're actually seeing it as a as a refuge. We know that refuge. So no matter what happens, it's still a refuge. So what is it now, the refuge in Buddha? If you should all say goodbye, Arjun Sumedha. We want nothing more to do with Buddhism. It's all a wicked lie. Goodbye forever. And I would. I could, what, what would be my refuge at that moment? If I was taking refuge in Buddha, what would I be doing? I'd be aware. I can always pay attention. I can always be here and now and with this moment and willing to feel it completely. Willing to uh, be fully accept what is happening, but seeing it in the context of Dhamma, seeing it for what it is. So seeing it in the context of Dhamma, then one, one sees that, that 
what arises ceases, what, what uh, comes must go away, what comes together separates. Everything, this realm is a realm of impermanence. And so uh, people come, and then they go away. <laughs> I can see the Dhamma, now I can see the, any attachments I've formed, like, like wanting you all to appreciate Buddhism, wanting you all to respect Buddhism, wanting you all to, to like me, wanting you all to appreciate the Sangha, wanting you all to, to become uh, summoners. <laughs> then there would be no, nobody left to bring the food. <laughs> be another challenge, isn't it? We'd all starve to death, mindfully. <laughs> so by observing that, the desires for, or desires to get rid of, desires to become, and, uh, more and more, you, you began to... Uh, trust in the ability to be awake and aware in the present, a sustained awareness, a kind of poised, contemplative state of just being here and being able to, to be open to what's happening, both around you, what you're feeling, what you're picking up in terms of the things that are affecting you from outside, as well as what's going on inside your mind the feeling of happiness or sadness or boredom or faith or despair, whatever that you, or anxiety, that you're aware of it. And you're aware of it as Dhamma, what arises ceases. And so this is like a, a microcosm. It's the way things are in the macrocosm. It works in the same way. It's not, it's not, uh, it doesn't, macrocosm doesn't, it isn't, uh, following different laws. The law of impermanence applies to this, to the, just your own experience of life, whatever way it is, no matter what you're thinking, good or bad, whether it's sane or insane, right or wrong, true or false, beautiful or ugly, whatever, the, the, uh, whether it's highly personal or whatever, it's, it is still this experience of a Nietzsche, impermanence. And so in internalizing the Dhamma, that's what we're doing. We're, we're making it, we're seeing how it really is. The, the Dhamma teachings that we have in the Pali Canon, we're taking those. And then we're, we're, we're contemplating, how, does that, how is that working? How is that happening now in terms of my own experience? In terms of this microcosmic experience? Because the Buddha did state very clearly, we're not here to just kind of become Buddhists and believe in Buddha and, and uh, there's no doctrinal positions in, in Buddhism. It's a strange religion for, for most people, for, the, for uh, uh, theistic religions. They, they have great difficulties in coming to terms with Buddhism because it is, it's different. It doesn't, it's, it's coming almost from an opposite place rather than from a theistic uh, statement towards a, an, uh, this emphasis on mindfulness, to be awake and aware, watchful. But it also implies a responsibility for what we do, how we live our lives. So in Sangha, our refuge in Sangha is, is our determination to do good, refrain from doing bad. 
It's, it's a moral commitment in Sangha. When we take refuge in Sangha, it means we're taking responsibility for how we live, what we do, what we do with these bodies in this society, what we say, how we use our ability to speak, and so forth. When we're, when we're, when we're really taking refuge in Sangha, then we're, I'm taking the responsibility for how I live my life as a human uh, individual being in this society. So it isn't just, and, and sometimes one gets the impression that all you have to do is be mindful. Just be mindful and it'll be okay. Rob a bank, be mindful. Smoke a joint, ganja, and be mindful of it. Do whatever you want, but uh, just develop mindfulness around it and it's okay. And that's the uh, the kind of, uh, of of kind of corruption of of Buddhism that you find in the present. But the sangha is isn't you know, uh, in fact the the monastic sangha is this very kind of uh, strict uh, discipline. And it isn't just just uh, 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 you know it isn't just a, a kind of uh, pointless experience uh, to kind of uh, avoid life, but it means that that we are taking on responsibility very much for how we live. And so the, the offerings made here uh, today, the Katina offerings, we ask ourselves, are we worthy of these offerings? You know, rather than thinking, you know, you're, you're very lucky to come here and give us offerings. We're thinking, am I worthy of these offerings? Have I been practicing Dhamma? Have I been living according within that restraint of Vinaya? Have I been doing it properly? And if I have, then, then I am worthy of these offerings. If I haven't, then I'm not worthy. And so, if I don't practice, and I don't... Uh, uh, and, uh, and and I'm not uh, using the vinya, then of course it's like cheating. It's like uh, taking something that doesn't really belong to you. This is something only you know yourself. There's no way you can can kind of know any uh, whether some you know unless they're obviously doing something bad. But but this is something that you you can know for yourself. So that your 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 feeling of of gratitude for uh, the, the the generosity of the lay community to make these offerings to the sangha, because this allows us to live here in Britain as alms mendicants, which is a wonderful thing that that's happening here in this country. That we can actually live in the traditional style of alms mendicancy in a very modern and non-Buddhist countries such as this one. And that it's, it's not, we're not, not seeing it in terms of, of us, uh, of, of uh, you know, of that we're doing favors, but of that our presence here is uh, found in, of value and worthy of respect so that people do want to help us to live this life. So then, then we experience the gatanyu, gatawaiti, or the experience of gratitude.
And this is most important in a spiritual life is gratitude. Because sometimes we we live in we live in modern life is very much a life where we're demanding all kinds of rights and privileges. We're jealous of each other. We we look at somebody that's better off or gets more attention or has more rights than we do, and we can only feel put down by it or, or shattered or jealous or or feel that, that it's not fair that that we should be treated like that, that we should, everybody should be treated equally and, and uh, if we're not treated equally then we feel very unhappy and, and disgruntled by that experience. So that's how we're conditioned in modern Western ways of thinking is to demand endless rights, equality, freedoms for ourselves and not to find joy or happiness in the success and, and the abundance of other people. I mean, the, the, the jealousy, is, uh, envy is a problem with all of us. We see somebody who gets more attention, is better, more liked, uh, richer, better looking, more gifted, more appreciated. And we, we, how many of you can delight and, and, and rejoice in, the, in somebody else's success? Without thinking, well, I'm not, it's not fair, I'm not that way. Nobody, nobody... Uh, pays attention to me. Nobody cares about me. So this, this kind of mind is something to, you know, we're trying to free ourselves from that kind of, of experience of the grumbling, complaining, demanding uh, kind of conditioning of the mind to experience katanyu or gratitude for the alms food that we get the shelter for the night, the robe material that's offered, the medis- medical things that are given to us, the medicines that are given to us, and for the Dhamma Vinaya, the teaching and the discipline. And so this is, this is very important in, 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 in all of our lives because uh, this life does bring up all these other tendencies. In monasticism, where there's always this sense of of somebody's getting more than I am, or, or there's it, we have this is a very common emotional feeling of, uh, uh, that we experience living together. So in the microcosm of the Dhamma, then we can we begin to notice that feeling and the suffering that we create that we have from from always feeling uh, that we're being put down or we're not being respected or we're not being appreciated or, or that, uh, you know, or that our group is not uh, as good as somebody else's group or that, that our teacher isn't as good as somebody else's teacher <laughs> or whatever. It, it goes on all levels from very personal to, to group to society itself. Now remember, uh, um, an alms mendicant is, is our life is based on the four requisites which is a shelter for the night. And so we train ourselves into contemplating the shelter for the night. And then we think, somebody's gone out of their way to provide me with a roof over my head for the night. And then one feels gratitude. But if I think, he has a better kuti than I do. 
I was only like this. Then I've lost it. Then I caught. And unless I see that, unless I'm willing to, to see that in terms of the Buddha being aware of the Dhamma, the arising and ceasing of condition. Now this is a, a simple practice, and it's very it is hard to do because we can we live in an age where where we we do expect uh, so much from life, and we do, and our feelings are always getting offended by the fact that life isn't going isn't fair to us, and and so we're we're easily offended, upset by almost anything. We become in many ways, so precious. Uh, and in, in, the, in the monastic life, we can become incredibly precious. We, we, you know, we're so pure, so dedicated, so committed, so moral, celibate. No, we don't touch money. We're, we're, we practice meditation. We've been in the Sangha for years. We've invested so much of our life in this way. I'm 30 years a monk. And so, so then, uh, you know, I, I've, I've, I've given myself to this life, that kind of feeling. But even after 30 years, the, the refuge, it comes back to the here and now, to the ability to be awake and aware of what I'm feeling now in terms of its impermanence and its, not, and its anatta, its not-self. And to trust in that, build this, this strong sense of trust and faith in just that kind of knowledge and that kind of practice so that your life isn't uh, wasted uh, in, the, in monastic forms by, by paying attention and committing yourself to worldly values and worldly ideas and, and uh, modern trends and fashions. Because the important thing isn't isn't the status or the position or the or the appreciation, but how we respond to what we're what we're experiencing, and that we can always do. In terms of the world, sometimes it's going to praise us. Sometimes it's going to give us everything. It's going to be very pleasant and uh, and encouraging, supporting, inspiring. And but also life is going to give us a lot of the other of the disillusionment, the, the despair, the, the blame, the criticism, uh, the loss. Uh, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. We have to bear with the loss of the love, loss of what we like, loss of security. So the refuge is always the same no matter what the conditions are. Praise and blame. The refuge is, is exactly the same in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Whether people like you and, and praise you and adore you, or they criticize you and they can't stand you, the refuge is, is always that awareness. Successes or failures, or, or uh, good health, or, or terrible health, uh, whatever, whatever the worldly dhammas are, then the refuge is, that's your refuge. It is not in any of the worldly dhammas, but in that uh, perfect awareness in the present. 
seeing things as the Dhamma, the way things are, whatever is subject to arising, subject to ceasing, to notice the cessation of conditions, to begin to, to realize the experience of non-attachment and non-self. Because when you are patient and, and mindful, then you begin to realize when things cease in your mind, when the absence and the, 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 the cessation and the absence of, of a condition and so you, 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 you notice, you, you're aware of the emptiness or the non-self or the, the absence of greed, hatred or delusion, the, the non-attachment, non-clinging experience or state of being. That is quite natural, but we don't, we don't notice it usually. We, don't, we aren't aware of it. We aren't, we, we aren't encouraged in our cultural values or cultural conditioning to, to, to note that. So in this particular style of teaching, the Buddha made a, in a great emphasis in that realization of cessation, like Nibbana. Nibbana is the realization of non-attachment. Niroda, realization of cessation. Anatta, the realization of non-self. Viraga, the realization of non-desire. And that this is something that, that is, is very uh, clearly stated in Buddhist teachings, to be realized, to be noticed. A realization is, is knowing reality, isn't it? It's, it's not something you, you get it's some, uh, that you don't have. It's you, you realize the way it is. Not, it's not that you're, it's, it's, it's not that way now, but you don't, may not realize it now. So this emphasis on here and now, the Pachubana Dhamma, the, the emphasis on mindfulness. When I chanted, Aparuta Desang Amatasa Tawara, the doors to the deathless are open. This was my theme when we, when we opened Amaravati. 1984, the doors to the deathless are open. What does that mean in terms of experience right now? Is that just a, a bombastic poetic phrase from the Pali Canon? <laughs> or what, you know? Or is that pointing to right now, the doors to the deathless are open? Was the Buddha uh, just being romantic about it? Or were the doors of death open only in India in, in 2,538 years ago? 